Today with Amazon Business, Shannon Stuckey of Walburn Woodworking helped her team buy 63 circular saws. Okay, Andy, take it easy. Now she uses her time to focus on growing something big. Buy smarter, dream bigger. Visit Amazon Business, your partner for smart business buying. Aprovecha los precios más bajos de la temporada de JCPenney. Como toallas de baño Home Expressions Quick Dry a solo $4.88. Y encuentra aún más ahorros en botas para damas y jeans para él y ella de marcas como St. John's Bay, Mutual Weave, Arizona y más. Comenzando en $21.88 cada uno. Compre con estilo. JCPenney. Ofertas válidas hasta el 23 de octubre en selección de estilos. Los precios más bajos de la temporada se refiere al periodo del 31 de julio al 23 de octubre. Se excluyen del cupón. Millions of despairing men, women and little children, victims of a system that makes men torture and imprison innocent people. You cannot shake hands with a clenched fist. Produced by a nuclear exchange would be carried by wind and water and soil and seed to the far corners of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. We're not saying that planet Earth is coming to an end. We're saying that planet Earth is about to be refurbished, spaded under, and have another chance to serve as a garden for another civilization. Most of the people in here are just your reflections. They're your mistakes. 1776 will commence again if you try to take our firearms. One million of the planet's eight million species are threatened. You are what you repeatedly do. Therefore, excellence ought to be a habit, not an act. Your lives and the credibility of the United Nations is at stake. Epstein didn't kill himself. The reason this is such an interesting time is not only because we're on the threshold of the end of this civilization. They're trying to take you out with bullshit. The experience of the past two years has proven beyond doubt that no nation can appease the Nazis. To those who can hear me, I say, do not despair. The misery that is now upon us is but the passing of greed, the bitterness of men who fear the way of human progress. The hate of men will pass and dictators die, and the power they took from the people will return to the people. And so long as men die, liberty will never perish. In the language of the U.S. Department of Defense, these are unidentified aerial phenomena. Roswell's a very interesting place with a lot of people that would like to know what's going on. Uh, there is very compelling evidence that we, uh, we may not be alone. This is the Garden of Doom. Welcome everyone into a special edition of Garden of Doom. We have two guests this, this episode uh, and we are going to talk about a spooky, scary and historic set of events, uh, maybe an obsession, if you will. And this is going to be about Nazis and the occult. And I'm really hoping to drop this before Halloween because I think it fits very well into Spooktober. Um, so listen, like most of you out there, you probably only heard about this vaguely. Maybe you only know about it from, you know, Marvel comic books with Captain America and the Red Skull or the MCU more recently, if you came to Marvel through the movies or the Indiana Jones movies, that's probably even more widespread though. I guess that's debatable at this point or sort of other things that have made your, made their way into your consciousness through pop culture. Um, and a lot of it is based on fact. I'm not sure how much Hitler was actually obsessed with it versus some of his lieutenants. I've heard different stories on it. Uh, 
And as you know, my mantra is why research when you can have other people who know this stuff tell it to me so that I have to spend my precious time researching when I can be napping. So we're going to talk about Nazis and the occult. And we have two guests today. I'm going to tell you who they are. Uh, one is Tom Ashwell, who is someone I've known for, I think it's 32 years and counting now. And he's a true blue history buff with a big baritone voice. And, uh, and the very stereotype of the guy who would spend three or four hours a night watching the History Channel. My other guest is Gary Wayne. Uh, most of you have heard the, his prior show, which was probably on within the last two months, Giants and Armageddon. Um, he has his own very large following. He's pretty big in the, uh, well, he calls himself a Christian contrarian. Uh, I'll just say in the larger paranormal community or alternative history community. Um, he's got a website, he's got books, he's a featured speaker, and he is part of the NACON conference along with myself. So we'll, we have to make sure to plug the Nephilim Anthropology Conference. Virtual tickets are available because those are limitless. If you are in the London area, there are still some in-person seats. But uh, as I recall, the pricing is very reasonable. And since the British pound has tanked, they, they probably have to pay you to, to attend at this point. Um, in any event, let's do let's let the guests do their own introductions. Uh, Mr. Ashwell, please introduce yourself and tell the folks what the what they need to know about you. Uh, well, I am Tom Ashwell, and Jeff and I have been friends for more than three decades. We went to law school together, and uh, uh, it's been an adventure ever since. Um, I am the guy that, that sits for hours uh, watching the History Channel, interrupted by my daughter or my two stepkids. Um, but uh, um, to the subject, I uh, didn't do a lot, of, uh, unlike uh, what Jeff said, um, I, did, I did more than no research. Uh, I did find a uh, book written in, I want to say in the 70s, and I, I read through different articles about uh, the, the topic of Nazis and, and the occult. And um, also true to the fact that I like to sit and watch TV, I, I've seen a lot of um, Discovery Channel shows, uh, particularly hosted by uh, Josh Gates. And he uh, goes to um, abandoned Nazi sites, and uh, he uh, discusses a little bit about some of the occult history of the Nazis. So I have a uh, deeper than skin deep knowledge of it, but I certainly am not uh, an expert by any stretch. So I am happy to join in. Well, excellent. And, you know, while I threw Tom under the Rommel-era German panzer there, he actually did more research than I did. But now we're turning to our real expert, Gary Wayne. So, Gary, please introduce yourself. Well, thank you for inviting me to your to your show, and so happy to be here. And, yeah, so for people who may not be familiar with who I am, I wrote a book uh, called The Genesis Six Conspiracy, How Secret Societies and the Descendants of Giants Plan to Enslave Humankind, and I have another sequel that's coming out. And... As bizarre, sort of as far out as maybe that title might uh, be to some people, so is a lot of the activities that we're going to be talking about today that the Nazis participated in. And so a lot of times uh, history is stranger than, than fiction or truth is stranger than fiction. So I'm a researcher, is who I am. I, I love mythology. I love history. And at a point in my life, I also got involved with became another part of my passion, which is 
prophecy. And so I link sort of all of that together in my research and also uh, in the books that I write. So um, I, I'm fairly well known in the, in the genre that uh, I'm focused on. And in my book, I also have a complete chapter that I devote to uh, Nazi Germany and Hitler and how it relates to sort of that larger kind of talk that, that we're talking about. So I tend to go a little bit deeper into some subjects than some people are usually aware of, and we're going to go a little bit deeper today into how the Nazis began and how a lot of things that uh, are superficially known actually have a lot of basis for fact for it. So we're going to bring that to bear today, hopefully. But that's who I am. And if people want to get a hold of me and they're interested in some of the things that I say, I have a website, the Genesis 6 Conspiracy. That's Genesis 6 with the number 6conspiracy.com. And you can contact the author there and ask me a question or get some more information. Excellent. Thank you. And I'd be remiss if I didn't uh, say I uh, hope you're well to uh, Pastor Jim Willemson. He was going to join us, but he's unable to. Uh, we're not exactly sure why, but we hope that, that he's well and will be able to join the group for the NACON conference. Uh, without out that out of the way, Gary, you're the expert, so I, I guess you should take us to those origins and where they began. Sure. Because I have a feeling that yeah. it goes deeper than, than I think. Yeah, it's quite a rabbit hole, so to speak, in the occult sort of terminology and a lot of things that we're going to talk about today. So one of the things I found quite interesting was a quote from one of the prosecutors of Nazi war crimes and at the Nuremberg trials, Harry Deeve, and he said that there is a, an extraordinarily large body of knowledge and evidence that wasn't utilized at the Nuremberg trials for fear that the Nazis would use that testimony to plead insanity <laughs> and get off on their charges. And that's kind of how bizarre this story starts to get as you start to dig a little bit deeper into it. And so when we look at the Nazi movement, it's got quite a quite a history and quite a number of pieces that are coming together to form this political religious movement um, of totalitarianism. And it grew out of, just to sort of preface it, it grew out of not only occult organizations, but fairly high level occult organizations and its planning and organizing. So you have organizations like Freemasonry, the Illuminati, the Rosicrucians, and let's say more vernacular orders that were formed as parallel organizations that were working with the Nazi movement, like the Ger German and Orden, the Thule Society, and those are connected back sort of not only to Freemasonry, but to a religion called Theosophy, which was very, very popular and growing up about the same time. And they're going to take that religion, it's going to go a little bit rogue, as everything that is done with the Nazis, everything goes rogue from what the planners are sort of initially thinking. And they form a religion in 1933 through the Rice Church that they called Ariosophy. So it has that Aryan sort of uh, history and culture, and it has the Theosophy, part of that polytheist movement that comes from secret societies. And they also link in imagery from the Teutonic Knights, Vril, 
volkish ideology and all of that forms sort of the intellectual sort of dynamite of the Nazi movement. So that's just kind of an opening volley just to sort of set the table. So if there's a couple questions or things that you want to add before I start moving on and start piecing in some of that, you should probably get in now because there's going to be some dates and things come up pretty fast. Thomas? Well, actually, what you said uh, is when I did my little bit of research, the, the thing I found uh, talking about the origins of Nazism and, and uh, uh, the um, sort of history of the development and, and the theosophy stuff in particular, I found a book on that. And now I can't remember it because I, I researched it a couple of months ago, but it was the only book I could find on the top. And I want to say it was published in the 70s or 80s. But he talked primarily about um, uh, the history of Nazism and theosophy in particular. And um, I sort of uh, gained general knowledge reading articles about the book uh, consistent with what you just said. So it's not um, it's not uh, Hitler sitting in prison uh, during World War One writing Mein Kampf. It's, it goes further back than that, certainly. So I'm, I'm, I'm with you on that. Yeah, and, and Hitler kind of becomes drafted into the movement after it's forming. They're, they're kind of looking for, a, a, you know, a dynamic leader, and he gets uh, sort of drafted into it because they identify him as somebody who might be able to be used to get to, to draw a mass appeal. So, yeah, there's a lot that goes in before Hitler comes along. I have a couple of questions. I mean, because theosophy, if you just look at the root of the word, basically means knowledge of God, uh, you know, from, yes. from the Greek. Um, yeah. And there's nothing... Go on, I'm sorry. Knowledge of a specific goddess, a female goddess. So Sophia is the goddess of wisdom and the mother goddess of the gods who produced the gods in Gnosticism, the 12 major uh, gods. And... Philosophy is the love of Sophia, the love of wisdom, or the love of Sophia. So they have a lot of words that they utilize within the secret societies and Gnostics, whether or not one wants to look at those as coincidental or as layered in as part of a religious sort of influence to that whole science. It's very interesting because uh, I call it the the dorsal wing because you know it's when we're right and left sort of meet, it's hard to tell them apart. I think others have called it a horseshoe or, you know, I, I'm certainly not the only one who has noticed it on the extremes. They're almost indistinguishable. And, and I guess what you're saying is that they took, you know, sort of parts of the, the right and the left and, and connected them and in, in that middle is, is the ultimate evil. Yeah. And so theosophy is a uh, Genesis religion of polytheist organizations, and in particularly the Rosicrucians, which are fairly high up on the philemic tree in terms of the organizational structure. And what the Rosicrucians are, are looking to do is, is sort of take the older Gnosticism and make it a little bit more reflective of the agendas and things that they're trying to do. And they're trying to create a religion. It's, really the same religion as Gnosticism, but it's going to be more for a global basis and it's going to be a religion that's going to be designed to reharmonize polytheism and sciences together. And so they create theosophy for their 
long-term goal of the new age or the new age of Atlantis, where you have a harmonic, harmonized science and religion for that utopian period that they're trying to bring about. Who influenced the, well, first of all, which Nazi leaders or figures were at the spearhead of this and who influenced them? What, what books, what thinkers, uh, had to come from somewhere? Yeah. So you have to sort of look at most of the people that are going to be the influencers of the Nazi movement, writing the doctrines and also initiating and educating Hitler as being secret society members and uh, theosophists. So there are, are Gnostics. I mean, and again, they're the, the same sort of, um, it's the same sort of religion. It's a branch religion, so to speak. So Dietrich, I, I, uh, Elkhart, or Eckhart, I'm sorry, is one of the more influential ones in terms of Hitler because he becomes the mentor for Hitler into the occult organization. He brings him in. And he's the editor of a Nazi uh, newspaper called the Volkisch uh, Pavaka. And Volkisch is a German term for um, sort of Aryan, uh, ancient, um, ideology. So he's, he's using and publishing his sort of belief in terms of the Rosicrucian uh, theology within the newspaper that he's doing. And he's a Thule Society member. Thule is a secret society that takes their name from an Atlantis kind of um, mythology. So it's an island, powerful continent. Some people think it might be Asgard, but it's probably just a sort of vernacular name for Atlantis. And it is an antediluvian society and a, a society where the gods walked amongst men and produced demigod giants, which is going to be sort of a connection that a lot of the influencers are going to have. I have yeah. heard, I'm sorry, I have, I've heard Thule being connected as a direct synonym for Toth, when people go Toth the Atlantean, and a lot of people think the Toth was also the same figure as Osiris. Well, Toth was a, a, a god of wisdom, actually a god that rises to a goddess status through the knowledge that he has. So he's either a demigod that's going to be raised or a human that's going to be raised up. In other versions, he would be a, an antediluvian god. So it sort of gets into that whole quagmire of the uh, Hermes Trismegistus in terms of they got three separate entities that have sort of been melded into one over time. And there's actually three different individuals, one being a god, one being a, a very powerful influencer and prophet before the flood and another very powerful individual after the flood. And so that's how that Trismiscus sort of comes about. So the knowledge idea is at the heart of Gnosticism as, as Gnosticism comes from Gnosis or wisdom or knowledge. It's a knowledge religion just as all mystical religions are. And as you become initiated into those religions and go up through the degrees that the old uh, version in terms of if you do a comparative to the Freemasonic Society, you have the old York Rite, which has three degrees. Uh, third degree is adepthood. Uh, and then there's degrees that are higher than that. And that's the old model of mysticism. The newer one that most people are more familiar with are the Scottish Rite, where it takes those three degrees 
and and splits them into 11 different components of that same degree step. So you get the 33 degree Scottish Rite. And they're learning knowledge and secrets as they go through this initiation sort of process. So the whole thing that is underlining Ariosophy is this knowledge religion based in polytheism and trying to um, reconnect back to those ancient Aryan roots. So hopefully I didn't go too too far too deep into trying to make that connection of thought, but it's it's key in terms of their whole understanding, just as you get into the words like theosophy and philosophy and all the other things that, that gets intermixed into their cult. I think you did a brilliant job of tying those things together because uh, I, mean, I think people would be nuts if they didn't draw the parallel between the Tri and the Trinity and 33 and, you know, Jesus died at 33 and there's a lot associated with 33. So it's, it's, it's almost like uh, I recently had a, a guest uh, on Voodoo and, and uh, you know, basically uh, the uh, people who were, you know, imported from the slave trade for Africa, they, they knew that they had to uh, uh, worship the Catholic style. So they took the Catholic uh, accepted figures and they put it sort of on their godheads and their spirits and that's what they worshiped and got away, you know, got away with it. It's almost like what the Nazis were doing was taking uh, this, this religion of theosophy and attaching, you know, and trying to fit what the accepted Christian doctrine into it. Maybe I'm not sure which is, which, if it's a, a parallel or it's just doing, taking the opposite approach, but it's, you know, it's similar. Well, it, yeah, the Rice Church is going to degrade uh, Jesus to a lower lower status, more of a prophet status, more of a Gnostic perspective, like an important individual. And they also recreate him as a blonde-haired, blue-eyed uh, one sent on the way, as the Gnosticism talks about. There's many people sent to humans to help them evolve into gods. And again, that sort of developing the godhood aspect and uh, into demigods as part of the whole Nazi sort of cult. So some of the people sent on the way that polytheist religions and secret societies would look at, it would be people like Confucius, it would be people like Buddha, it would be people like Hermes, and names like that throughout history who have this seemingly spark of the divine, as they would describe it, an extra wisdom, almost an avatara of an avatar that provides that knowledge and that link to help humankind evolve into godhood. So that is sort of a, an important kind of aspect in terms of what they're going to try and overlay. And then they're going to almost raise Hitler as the Fuhrer in that whole ideology to that level. But again, he sort of comes along later. So I'll introduce a couple other characters for context in terms of who, who's building this whole uh, uh, political movement and religious movement. There's an interesting fellow called Hans Horberger, and he's a scientist who wrote a book called Glacial Cosmology. And he believed in the giants in Sumeria and the Bible. Uh, no coincidences from what I introduced before. And Hitler was heavily influenced by him and his teaching and his sort of vision of history, which again sort of intersects with that whole Thule society, understanding that Atlantis, if it's the same as Thule or a similar organization, but using the context as similar to Atlantis, you had Poseidon who marries a human female named Clido and creates 
10 demigod giant kings who are going to rule over the Atlantean Empire, who are sort of the center of the golden age, the center of knowledge in, in the uh, accountings like Plato would provide in Critias and Timaeus, and is trying to take over the whole world. They're going to lose to the, uh, to the Greeks and Greeks of Athens as the story progresses, but they're trying to create that one world government with these 10 kings, these 10 demigod kings. And so Hitler was heavily influenced by this, and he believed that superhumans ruled before the flood and that over time that had been degraded in terms of their, their purity, their bloodlines, and Hitler is going to sort of adopt, and as the movement is, is we want to sort of backwards re-engineer that demigod, which is going to be the new man that they're going to try and tap into, so to sort of bring back that uh, ideology, but in a manifestation of that ideology as their supremacy, because demigods would be considered superior to the average human who would be considered mundane from that perspective. Uh, Alfred Rosenberg is another key individual in this uh, group of people that are going to be coming together, and he's the maker of Nazi doctrine. He's the central uh, uh, intellectual dynamite behind it, and then he was actually sort of labeled the Nazi theoretician. So that's how important he is to the doctrine. And he's also a member of the Thule Society. And he wrote a book called The Myth of the 20th Century as one of the books that he wrote. And he proclaimed the death of Christianity as they, as he evolves that into this Ariosophy language or religion that's going to be cemented in 1933 as the Reich Church. And he believed in Volkisch ideology uh, that would be brought back through this uh, this doctrine and this religion that would revive the ancient German soul. So again, they're trying to go back to those ancient sort of Aryan roots. Another individual to keep in mind is Ernest Bergman, and he wrote uh, Die Durch National Church. So it's a German yeah. <laughs> title for the, the German National Church. Um, hopefully I didn't butcher that too bad. I'm not German by descent, so my accent and my pronunciation of German words not that good. And he was uh, a member of another secret society and movement called uh, the German Belief Movement. And he said Ariosophy that they're implementing as the national religion it was the same religion of Mithras, which was one of the more dominant religions just before Christianity and in Rome. And Mithras is coincidentally has the same birth date that was celebrated for Christmas, December 25. But Mithras is a branch religion of Zoroastrianism. Today with Amazon Business, Shannon Stuckey of Walburn Woodworking helped her team buy 63 circular saws. Okay, Andy, take it easy. Now she uses her time to focus on growing something big. Buy smarter, dream bigger. Visit Amazon Business, your partner for smart business buying. 
Aprovecha los precios más bajos de la temporada de JCPenney. Como toallas de baño Home Expressions Quick Dry a solo $4.88. Y encuentra aún más ahorros en botas para damas y jeans para él y ella de marcas como St. John's Bay, Mutual Weave, Arizona y más. Comenzando en $21.88 cada uno. Compre con estilo. JCPenney. Ofertas válidas hasta el 23 de octubre en selección de estilos. Los precios más bajos de la temporada se refiere al periodo del 31 de julio al 23 de octubre. Se excluyen del cupón. It's a Romanized version of Zoroastrianism that was started originally in Persia by Arians shortly after the flood and also in the Indus Valley for the start of the Hindu religion. And it's no coincidence that Zoroastrianism and Hinduism have a lot of common words in their religion and they had a common, um, uh, you know, source to it. So you have... Uh, An ancient religion that is again going back to people that in that mythology either were recreated again after the flood or somehow survived the flood. And in typical polytheist uh, understanding is these are the ones that escaped from Tartarus. And these are giants from the rebellion of the gods and the Nephilim, which is the Hebrew word for giants or heroes of old, um, that were locked in Tartarus, which is in Hades, which is in the other world, and it's the same place as the abyss that's talked about in the Bible. But somehow they escape after the flood and they come out and repopulate the earth. And typically, we also understand them as the same as the Scythians or the Tuatha de Danan, which is important because the typical hair color of the Tuatha de Danan and the descriptions and of the Atlanteans and of these Aryans are basically two different shades. One is blonde hair, blue eyes. The other one is red hair and hazel eyes and very pale white skin. And of course, they tend to migrate up the Danube River uh, of one branch and into Russia, into Germany, into Norway. Other ones will go into Scotland and England and Wales and And, and, and elsewhere. So again, really sort of important sort of background in terms of what he believes. And he also believed and, and wrote about Jesus was actually a pantheist. So he's reinventing him um, as a prophet in this new religion. And he also said that the church is based on a racist doctrine. In other words, a purity of a race that they're going to try and make more pure as they go. And another individual, and there's quite a few more, but these are the more important ones, is Rudolf Hess. He's also a member of the Thule Society. And another fellow by the name of Hossifer, and he was part of the Order of the Golden Dawn and also a mentor to Hitler as they're introducing him into this movement. And he believed in the Aryan super race, and he wrote... Um, you know, a lot into the, 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 the German doctrine into Nazism. So he worked quite closely with, um, with Rosenberg in establishing the, the doctrine. And as I said, he was a mentor to Hitler and to Hess. And so those are uh, some of the more important direct influencers to Hitler, as well as Hitler was a super fan of Wagner who they also overlay his ideology and take some of the names like Fuhrer in some of his works for uh, Hitler being the new Messiah, because it basically means leader, right? And the leader of this, of this religion. Now there are other ones, but I thought, again, I thought I would let you guys back in because as we start to talk about the, 
the characters of these individuals, it will start to sort of provide proper background and and um, support for some of the events in terms of major dates in the forming of the Nazi religious movement. I, I have a couple of questions, if I may. Um, first of all, you, you, you said that you, um, they referenced Confucius and, and, and whatnot. Any references to Muhammad? Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And then um, the, all the, the, the cast of characters you just displayed, I, I'm interested in particularly their archaeological work, because what I've seen, uh, and, and again, just because I, I spent a lot of time watching the Discovery Channel, um, a lot of the archaeology, as far as I can tell, um, they think uh, Atlantis uh, did uh, actually exist uh, in the Mediterranean basin and, and actually um, submerged due to seismic activity in that area of the world. Um, and so they're, they're doing archaeology now uh, in the water, underwater. Um, did, did that Nazi cast of characters, did they get into archaeology at that level? Were they also looking under the Mediterranean Sea and places like that to find uh, these these artifacts that they were looking at? Yeah, they were obsessed with finding the hallows of the ancient world. And so when you watch the first movie of uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark, that's sort of how transfixed they were in terms of finding stuff. So I, yes, that's a fiction, but it's based on that obsession that, that the Nazis had. And you know, they, uh, they assigned a specific person uh, that was going to head up and spearhead all the places around the world that they were going to try and find some of this stuff because they wanted to use it for credibility and part of the mythos that they're building for this new ideology, religion, and political movement. So Otto Rahn is the uh, main guy that's going to be organizing through utilizing of uh, the SS and everything else that he's going to be provided through the government structure. And he's the he's an occult researcher and an archaeologist sort of by trade, and he's author of a book called The Crusade Against the Grail. Of course, the Grail ideology is very much part of that whole mix, but that's a different rabbit hole. And so they did a lot of actual digging, not you know all around the world and stuff, but the main main place was Montesegur after taking uh, France, and that's in Languedoc. Uh, and Languedoc, it was the home, uh, the epicenter of a lot of groups like the Cathars, the Elbigensians, the Templars, uh, and uh, and also sort of the route for, um, there's a several books in the 80s like Holy Blood and Holy Grail and the basis for the Da Vinci Code where Jesus is pulled down off the cross, Mary's, Mary Magdalene produces, Josephus as the third son who's going to marry into the Camelot dynasties because he's brought there by Joseph of Arimathea, then through um, Aminabad and Urgen of that Camelot bloodline dynasty is going to intermarry into the Merovingians who are going to produce their last um, survivor, Dagobert, uh, descendants that are going to create the Knights Templar in uh, about 1100, 1099, and that's going to include uh, Anjou, it's going to include the Bouillon, and it's going to include the Payan, who all live in the Lorraine area, who have bloodlines that are sort of 
back back their way in there. So again, part of that whole secret society, Gnostic myth, and again bringing the bloodlines and that mythology into that that overarching group. So uh, in Montesegur, um, they sent uh, Himmler after getting some good reports sent a complete battalion of SS troopers there. And uh, they were searching through these Cathar sites that I was mentioning. And uh, Ron's research believed that Montesegur held the Jerusalem treasure that the Knights Templar brought back. And they also believed it had the tablets of the testimony. They believed it had the Ark of the Covenant, a.k.a. the search in uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark, all sorts of occult knowledge. It had the Holy Grail, it was the Spear of Longevin, uh, that Longenies that they were looking for, the Spear of Charlemagne, that's also known as Copper Scrolls. And they actually sent on March 15, 1944, Scors Scorsenzi uh, was who was uh, an officer uh, overseeing the military aspect for Otto Rahn there. He sent a telegram back to uh, Berlin saying Eureka. And uh, then re returned uh, sort of immediately back there was wanting to return immediately back there. Then he's told back, you no, know, you wait there for their arrival. And so there's a Colonel Beckner of the 45th Infantry um, who uh, was involved on sort of afterwards in detailing some of the stuff. And, and we don't know what happened to a lot of it, but within, you know, the treasure of the ages, as was being described by the Nazis there, there was, you know, lots of fragments that they found of, of the ark, allegedly uh, gold from the temple, pre-runic tablets, uh, treasures and goblets and plaques with cuneiform script on it and a whole bunch of other things. Nothing of the spectacular types that one would expect with the telegram, but it certainly excited them. And this was an area they were researching because Alaric of the Visigoths in 410 had sacked Rome and took all of the treasures that Rome had taken from Jerusalem back with them. And it's also thought in that sort of lore that the treasure of the Knights Templar that wasn't part of the Rome treasures were all sort of stored in secret places in that area. So that's just sort of the tip of the iceberg of how obsessed they were to sort of raise their uh, religion up to being the true religion of the world led by superhuman people. I'd like to break in here and just uh, plug prior shows because uh, um we always get new listeners, and one of the nice things about Garden of Doom is, for the most part, 95% of the shows, if not more, are not time-sensitive whatsoever. But we've had tons of shows which deal with the Nephilim, demigods, the offspring of fall, the Watchers and or Fallen Angels and the, the Daughters of Man, the Anunnaki, whatever you want to call them. Every, every culture has demigods in them. Um, Volks, which is very interesting. I mean, most people hear Volks, they think of uh, Volkswagen, the car company. But I, I think that the, basically the word means you know, the passion or love like, uh, of driving. Uh, but uh, with our guests from the Eastern border, when we went over Eastern uh, religions, folklore, Voltan, or I'm probably pronouncing that wrong, but what was their version of Odin or Woden, which of course ties back to Asgard. Also in Greek, there's a large word that I cannot pronounce, but uh, 
But when you take it, it's associated with vampires. But if you look at it, it's more like werewolves. But but it also it, it has ties in Greek to a supernatural being. We've had two episodes, at least on the Scythians or Scythians, one from a Persian perspective and one from researching of a more traditional Russian perspective. I'm not going to say which one's right or wrong. And they're not even all that different. And it probably doesn't matter due to intermixing of peoples as people do when they when they come across each other. Um, and Aryans, uh, how Aryans are, you know, are the word Aryans, the word Alans, the word I, I, Iran are all the same. Uh, and, you know, the the perversion of the term Aryan is really within the last hundred years um, to, to maybe change it forever. Have a show on Hermeticism, where we talk about Hermes Trismegistus. Um, we've had a, a sh several shows on Templars from different perspectives. We've also discussed how the swastika was a ancient Persian and Indian symbol that was trans transmuted in both meaning and direction, uh, no accent there, that the Templar cross and the Nazi iron cross, very similar, no, no accident there on the symbology, and that Alaric, who you just mentioned, was not just the king of the Visigoths, but was also the king of the, of the Alans, who I just said were also the Aryans, so that, that's all tied in as well. Um, so, Everything is connected. Uh, you just have to, you just have to look. Um, and for those of you who are in the U.S. or follow U.S. politics, don't think that, 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 that some of these root, root beliefs are not the exact same things that, that Christian nationalists or white Christian nationalists or QAnon followers are lynching, uh, not lynching onto. It's the wrong word. <laughs> Maybe, but holding on to or grasping or believe in deeply and it is not a new set of beliefs it's it's just been sort of morphed and shaped and you know uh in these in, in these ways that gary is doing an excellent job of of sort of weaving together uh really into prehistory yeah and well, go ahead oh, i'm fine i'm good you're doing great tom did you have something no yeah, uh, yeah okay, no. i was just good I was just going to uh, interject and sort of add on to uh, why the Aryans are a little bit, um, seems a bit confusing in terms of why there's kind of different sort of traditions and history about them. There's four distinct groups of Indo-Aryans, Indo-Europeans after the flood, uh, at least, and if you're not a believer in the flood, from that time frame, there's four distinct groups. And... Uh, they are basically, you know, ones that move down into uh, Persia and into the Indus Valley, as I, I described. And they tend to be kind of black-haired, uh, thick black hair uh, uh, and thick beards. So when you see images of Nimrod or Gilgamesh or Syrian kings, that would be sort of the bloodline and the kings that would follow that. You had a group that was located in, uh, in Asia Minor. Um, which is basically Scythia in around kind of the, you know, the Black Sea region. Um, and you, and that's basically, you know, the blonde haired, red haired ones for the most part. You also have some of these black haired ones and they're all, they're, they're kind of uh, organized as a separate group that go into the Greek islands whether or not it's uh, Cyprus or Malta and as the Etruscans and, and the root and the, 
the aboriginal religion of the Etruscans that the Romans would later take over and adopt just as the Phrygian religion is part of that, which the Greeks would take over and that sort of tradition. So you got those, and then you have one that's centered down again, that's very much related to the Scythians in the Middle East area of Canaan and Palestine and in that area that are commonly understood as the Raphaim after the flood and the Horim, for example, are red haired and pale skinned and, and very much similar and connect sort of back in. So you have those migrations that are going on. And so that's why it gets sort of confusing. People say, well, which ones are they? Well, there's, there's a lot of them and they tend to be already there when people are migrating in your humans and as, as they're sort of understood in comparative to the, to the giants, which these Indo-Aryans are thought to be, intermarry with them later. So that's why it's a little bit sort of confusing. And you're talking about the Alan. I talk about the Alan a lot in, uh, in my book as it connects into some of that migrations that move through Europe, but also over into England and into that whole Grail mythology as well. And you see the name Alan transliterated lots of times through the Grey Trail, uh, the Grail tales, which were funded and sponsored later in history by the Knights Templar, <laughs> which is, again, you right. just can't make some of this stuff up. So, you know, you might have, uh, 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 you know, Lance, Lance a lot would be part of uh, that sort of transliterations. Uh, and you've got uh, Ellen as a name and Alan as a name. Those are all finding ways to encode that history and belief in, in, in those kind of tales. And where that starts to connect back into what we're talking about is, is that we said that the Germans were smitten with the, uh, the hollows of the Grail treasures. And of course, the Holy Grail has a lot of different meanings, but and it, and it works into that Volkish ideology. And Volkish or Folkish, as we would, you know, folk, uh, the Tuatha de Danan were also known as the Fair Folk because they were beautiful, which is root for fair, but it's also rooted in that pale skin and the fair hair that, that, that they had. And so that's it's part of that grail Volkish ideology that is woven into uh, the chemistry uh, and, the, and, and the recipe of, of, of this movement. And so Hitler, after being indoctrinated with all this stuff, he looks at himself as a grail knight. Not as we would understand a knight, but as a knight of the round table or a king, because those were all kings that were actually around that that round table. And or as you take that back into that circle, that circle of the ring lords or the Anunnaki kings, um, that's all part of that whole mythology that they're trying to weave back in. Just as you mentioned, the Nazi symbol, which comes from the eastern side of polytheism, which the, has been widely accepted through theosophy as they sort of intermix that global Gnosticism, as I would call it, that also has its roots back in the Anunnaki before the flood again, uh, in, in terms of a time frame. So again, you have lots of those interesting sort of connections. And the, uh, the, the spear of destiny, uh, or the Grail Spear of Destiny, as it's also called, or the Lance of Charlemagne. It was also known and thought to be, and why they really wanted it, thought to be the ancient rod of the Anunnaki of the Ringlords. That's all stuff that they believed 
was represented in that sort of ideology. So is that different now, than the uh, spear that that pierced Jesus' side? Well, that's. I think those are two separate spears okay. because, and and, to, and they've been conflated into a mythology because, I mean, a Roman guard wouldn't have had this the spear that was you know goes back to the ring lords of the Anunnaki, right? That's the spear of kingship. So not likely. I think they're two different ones. Although one could say, well, maybe it was brought there and they wanted to spear it into somebody that was going to be raised up to be, uh, you know, deity status. Um, but, and, or maybe it was transformed because of the blood of Christ into something more, right? Because of this uh, preternatural uh, uh, ideology behind who Christ was. And, and, you know, I think that's possible as a Christian, but uh, I think they're two separate spheres and it's just been conflated. Stefan George is somebody that we have to mention in here as well. And in the early 1900s, he was a poet and a writer of occultism and theosophy. So he's kind of, we're kind of getting into more of the genesis of this whole ideology. And he's the one who co-opted out of long, long rest, the word Fuhrer, or long rest Fuhrer from uh, Wagner. And that's the title that, um, Hitler, of course, is going to be assigned to. And he, uh, his writings uh, were taught in the Hitler youth movement. So he becomes very much part of the molding of the young people that are, are coming up. And uh, Wagner, uh, who wrote uh, Longrigen and um, other Volkish ideology into his works, uh, where he overlaid the Grail mythology onto that, and so that's where it sort of merges with the uh, the ideology of the Nazis. And he drew heavily from Aschenbach's Grail's writings, right? Yeah, and Aschenbach, uh, Aschenbach was sponsored by the Knights Templars, and so he what and Wagner was quite anti-Semitic, Semitic. So that's part of what's being woven in there, and he also heavily influenced. Uh, Hitler and he actually went to see uh, Hitler actually went on the night of announcing the uh, Reichstag he actually went to an opera of Wagner to sort of celebrate that to sort of indicate how how much there was an influence on it another individual Von List he becomes the sort of architect of the Arius Ariosophy or Ariosophical movement and he combined he was the first one to combine theosophy with the Volkish ideology. And uh, he, along with uh, Jorgen uh, Lanz and, and von Liebenfels, he they're going to form an order that's called the New Temple Order of Liebenfels. Okay, and this is going to be the first formed Armanan order of the Indo-Aryan movement. So, and that all happens in about 1912 or so. So this is pre-Hitler. This is, again, all being assembled before he comes along. And, uh, and then in 1912, a fellow by the name of uh, Sebettendorf, he creates a new order along with von List, who I just mentioned, and they establish the Germanen Orden Society, which we mentioned as one of the founding uh, orders of of Nazism, and in 1918, uh, they established, uh, he and a few other people established the Thule Society. 
So that becomes part of the, the mix. So here's how we start to look at some dates in terms of things. I'm going to do two sets of dates here and it may, you know, I don't want to get too tedious, but I think it's kind of important to sort of understand how things come together. So in 1864, a German, uh, by the name of, of Hyman, he goes to, uh, place in Greece and finds the Pergamum altar. And this is the altar of Zeus, right? This is the altar that is uh, going to be taken back to Germany. And it's going to sort of mix into this German ideology. And so, and they found the, the altar of Zeus in 1871. In 1875, Theosophy is established by uh, Helen Belaski and other high level Rosicrucians. And it's, it's, uh, in 1878, the altar of Zeus is moved to Berlin and to a museum that's built for the altar, uh, the altar until 1908. And in 1884, the Fabian Society and progressives and politics are being established. So you see the socialist movement that's starting to develop. Uh, in an interesting way, as opposed to the communist movement. So there's a difference between socialism and communism, and then this specific form that's going to become national socialism um, uh, is is going to be an offshoot of, of some of this ideology. And then 1889, Hitler is born. Okay, so again, we see the formations even before Hitler is is being born. In 1891. The Rhodes Society, funded by the Rothschilds, and the, and the establishment of the run, uh, of the roundtables and the inquiry uh, for world government begins. So now you get start of this globalist movement that Hitler is going to take into his own ideology in his own way to try and conquer the whole world. Nineteen hundred, the Theosophy. Uh, morphs into a rogue offshoot called Ariosophy that is a pan-Aryan type of uh, ideology. And this is the beginning of that Aprovecha los precios más bajos de la temporada de JCPenney. Como toallas de baño Home Expressions Quick Dry a solo $4.88. Y encuentra aún más ahorros en botas para damas y jeans para él y ella de marcas como St. John's Bay, Mutual Weave, Arizona y más. Comenzando en $21.88 cada uno. Compre con estilo. JCPenney. Ofertas válidas hasta el 23 de octubre en selección de estilos. Los precios más bajos de la temporada se refiere al periodo del 31 de julio al 23 de octubre. Se excluyen del cupón. Si sientes que tu compañía celular te quita tu dinero y tu poder, levanta la mano. En realidad, no podemos verte, así que puedes bajar la mano. Boost Mobile te da el poder de ahorrar con un plan sin límite por 25 dólares al mes en una de las redes 5G más grandes del país. En vez de perder el tiempo levantando la mano para avisos de radio, cámbiate a Boost y obtén un plan sin límite por 25 dólares al mes. Boost Mobile, desata tu poder. Solo nuevos clientes. Una línea por 25 dólares al mes con AutoPay. Aplica restricciones adicionales. Visite busmobile.com para detalles. Uh, corruption of theosophy or it's starting to, to go rogue. In 1901 to 1905, the Armadan Order on List starts to get uh, a formation idea of and begins to, 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 to start to form the organization. And he's going to move into tonic ideologies and why that's important is the Teutonic Knights are like a sister knight order to the Knights of St. John 
and the Knights Templar, but this is a Germanic order that's separate from the Catholic Church. But this is what the SS is going to be um, formed around that sort of ideology, and that's going to get wedded into the, the, the Nazi ideology as well. In 1907, the new temple order from von Liebels is and Cistercian monks, and Cistercian monks were the founders of the Knights Templar. They're the dynamite to pull the pull that together with, with royal bloodline families that form the Knights Templar, is is organizing to, to bring about the new temple order. In 1910, the new Pergamum Museum is built or started, and uh, in 1912, the German order is. Uh, is established adopting Wagner movement into it. So you see all of this starting to, to come together. And in 1918, the Thule Society is, is performed along with the DAP and the Ger German workers movement. And Hitler joins the DAP in 1915. So he's part of part of that as that's working as the Thule Society starts to, to move into the DAP Society. And then in 1920, the the Thule Society buys the Volkart, that's Elkhart's, uh, Eckhart's newspaper, who's the editor, and Eckhart becomes intermixed with this, and he's the mentor to Hitler. And then in 1922, 1923 to 25, you have that Hitler youth movement that's going to be taught, uh, formed, and they're going to be taught doctrines of this pan-Aryan ideology. Stefan George is going to be a major component of it, and they're going to be introduced to that SS as the youth, right? It all starts to sort of look towards the next generation and brainwashing for that. 1930, the Nazis become the second party and elected, and the Pergamon Museum is completed. In 1933, Hitler comes to power, and after viewing um, a Wagner musical play, the Reich Church is born, and it's a play about Percival and the Knights Templar, I mean the Grail Knights, again, with that Grail ideology. Um, and then he begins the Nuremberg rally starting in 1933. And then 1933 uh, to 35, Spears builds the Zeus altar. So this is becoming all part of that Rice Church, that polytheist pan-Aryan back to the Scythian uh, gods. Zeus is actually an offspring god of the parent gods uh, and is a post-Diluvian uh, god as opposed to, let's say, Kronos and Gaius would have been um, parent gods that were both before the flood. And Zeus takes over, and he's the head of the pantheon of the Greek. Most of the pantheons are quite similar around the world. They have the same types of gods, just different vernacular names. So whether or not you've got those, you know, Isis it would be, uh, I'm sorry, or Osiris would be an equivalent god to Zeus as the head of the Egyptian pantheon, again, an offspring god after the flood. Uh, Baal and Ashtaroth, Baal is the son of El, Alil, Anki, son of Anu, they all take over, it's the same sort of sort of concept. Um, and in 1935, Hitler announces uh, the Nuremberg uh, laws and uh, final solutions at Nuremberg. So that's just part of, that's just the, 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 the theosophical, I mean the, uh, the secret society aspect of it. And so as you mix those two ideologies together, I mean, those two timelines together of the, the theosophy, ariosophy, and the secret societies, and understanding 
originally before it branches off into Ariosophy from Theosophy, that's the Gnostic religion of the secret societies. Wow. That was, that was a lot. That was like a college level dissertation. Um, I, okay. I, I don't have, I, I don't even feel like I have an adequate question and I, and I don't want to. Tom, do you have a, a, any sort of question that you want to ask? Well, not, not a quick question, but again, uh, that was a lot to pack into a small amount of, of time. Um, but it's all stuff, frankly, that, that, that I read about over the course of many years. You know, I, I don't generally read fiction. I read history and, um, and I, I sort of had, that, um, a vague notion of how Nazism developed. I knew Hitler wasn't the uh, uh, the cause of it or the, the, the source of it, um, but uh, you know, very interesting. And, and you know, what what I have sort of thought over the last fifty four years of my life is um, organized religion is really uh, very costly. Very any kind of organized religion. Um, because it, it, it all can be played if, if the right person in power uh, takes a hold of any organized religion. Uh, it can be uh, uh, it can wreak all kinds of damage, and that's what you just said. Uh, uh, sort of illustrates that wholeheartedly. Yeah, because it becomes part of the state religion, it becomes part of the politics. When it becomes that powerful, they become wedded. Religion uh, is, a, is a construct of things written by prophets or uh, important people that are, that are forming the organization. Religions ought not to be these centralized organizations where they can be corrupted. So if you look at sort of like the original Judaic organizational structure, which Christianity and Islam becomes um, essentially a branch of, it was a very decentralized organizational structure, not designed to have this all-powerful, absolute power over the people, but to guide the people. There were laws that came from that, yes, and it was enforced by, because it was a you know theocratic movement, but it was a decentralized religious aspect. So you had a central temple, but you had all these other synagogues around that weren't part of a this, this organized hierarchy. Christianity and the Jerusalem church was designed to be the same thing. But with it being co-opted by Constantine, right, right, um, in the early 300s and raising it to a state-sponsored religion, what he does, though, he doesn't just take the original Jerusalem church organizational structure and beliefs. He says, no, this is, I'm going to do what was done in Persia with Zoroastrianism just a couple of hundred years before and, and unite my empire uh, with this new state-sponsored religion. So he mixes, mixes in uh, Sol Invictus, which is another part of the main religion of Rome at that time, as well as uh, Myth, Mithraism, which is a branch of Zoroastrianism, which, you know, as we talked about, as I just mentioned, was used in, in Persia to create this state-sponsored religion. And he also mixes in some Egyptian imagery and stuff that is going to become part of the rituals and part of the, the uh, iconology of this new state-sponsored state religion. So he morphs it, and he takes it from being a decentralized, independent 
little branches to a very powerful organizational structure and very quickly it becomes used for uh, power and used against people and in very, very vicious ways. And it becomes very much unlike what it was designed to do. And that tends to happen with most religions, whether or not it's uh, Islam that is then adopted into, you know, to do all sorts of horrific things through jihadism, whether or not it's various polytheist religions throughout history that are always the state-sponsored religion and done in the name of that God. Once it becomes that powerful, as opposed to a guide to the society in terms of principle and beliefs, then it can be used for evil. And just like everything in this world, whether it's knowledge or technology or whatever, it's a double-edged sword. It could be used for good or it could be used for evil, but inevitably, combined with power, with humanity's state as being imperfect, it's used for evil. Yeah. I'm going to resist the temptation to, to add my two cents and wax philosophical on that. Uh, I have a platform to do that every single week. What I want to do now is move into, I guess, Act 3 of, of our show. And I mean, I think that there's been a great academic, historical, uh, you know, uh, hourglass here that, that took a whole lot, uh, you know, basically six to 20,000 years of, of, of history, philosophy, and belief and sort of figured out the funnel to, to get us to the Nazis and perhaps beyond, you know, I, I said QAnon, somebody could say Putin, whatever. Um, or, or you can reject that if you like, that's okay too. Um, but I want to get into, try to get into, if you can call it the fun stuff with Nazis, it's hard, but let's do the fun stuff. So where, where, where did they search? What were they looking for? And let's please start with something, someplace crazy like Antarctica. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, they had, uh, you know, the largest, most advanced submarine fleet of any of the nations in World War II, right? So they set up bases everywhere that they went. Uh, getting to Antarctica in that state of submarine uh, in terms of technology and building bases is something that you you might need help with. Um, and I'm not saying that explorers didn't do risky things throughout the ages because they did. I mean, they sailed across the ocean. You know, they faced all sorts of challenges, including death. So did they explore um, Antarctica? Possibly. Um, I think there's some evidence that indicates they may have visited there, whether or not they found, as a mythos goes, this hidden base that connects back to uh, aliens connects back to pyramids, back to ancient ages, all of these treasures, different peoples. There's a whole bunch there we don't know. We do, do, we do know there's way too many important people continually funneling down there and sworn to secrecy and then don't you know, talk about it when they come back. Wait, wait, wait. Let's, let's stop there. Let's, let's, let's not gloss over that. So yeah. <laughs> what, what, what is the mythos that you just, that you just, because that's exactly the kind of thing that I think that my audience maybe wants to hear about and doesn't know nearly as much about. Let's not take it that, that we all, we all know about the base and who's visited there and, and what the, yeah. what those, uh, mythical or real ties are, what it, the alleged ties are. We'll just leave, we'll use that word. The alleged ties to 
races, giants, Hollow Earth, whatever, whatever it may be. We're not going to judge on any of them. We're just going to say what the mythos is. Tom, did you want to jump in on that first, or do you want me to expound on that? No, actually, because uh, I don't know much about it either. Okay. <laughs> no worries. Um, so, I mean, there's there's several different groups of, of subsets of the mythos, and I, I rattled off a few of them. So the main ones are, and it, all of them sort of start with this one premise, though. It's kind of like the knowledge that the adepts learn at the first level of adepthood, so third degree or 33rd degree, that it will overturn every preconceived uh, notion. That's what everybody says is down there. So uh, one is led to believe that that is that there is um, from the ancient times, ancient technology, um, ancient buildings, ancient knowledge, uh, treasures of some sort, and some people believe the giants are stored there in stasis or in sarcophagi or things like that, or that's one of the places that they went to survive the flood is kind of another vein. There are other, other kinds of beings that would be created out of ancient theology as well. So if we're familiar with uh, Greek mythology and it's similar kinds of mythologies around the world is the gods not only created the giants in every culture on every continent around the earth and we don't know what's in antarctica yet but maybe there's records there as well but they also created uh, beings like the elementals and the elementals are four different groups of peoples but they're commonly known as the fairies right so you have three groups of fairies you have um the ugly ones like dwarves and hobbits and trolls, and they all have specific roles and, and things. I won't go through all of like Tom and me. Yeah, you have the good-looking ones, right? Uh, and you have <laughs> and you have uh, the mischievous ones like leprechauns, and then you have one that's sort of outside the fourth elemental, and they're all related to the occult uh, cardinal points and the and things like fire and air that are associated with those cardinal points. There's a larger one which is called salamanders, and they're like a reptilian type of individual. So that starts to lead into some of the mythos about the reptilians that are either in tunnels, underground cities, in the earth, and in Antarctica. Just as the Nephilim were thought in the original uh, creation, the giants from the seraphim, serpent-faced gods, took on the physical attributes as a serpentine-looking sort of individual. So you have all of these different types of beings that are sort of part of that. And then you get one interesting one in the ugly uh, fairies. Um, you have uh, the, the gnomes. And the gnomes looked after the technology, the genealogy, and the knowledge of the ancient ones. And so they tend to be associated in there as well. And what's important to note on a connection there into the more modern alien mythos, that is thought to be alien bases and all sorts of alien races that are there as watchers over the human race and stuff like that, is that in fairy lore, you have these one set of gnomes that have flying machines that come through portals, fairy mounds, fairy domains, and they 
come out and they kidnap people and they need to do sexual experimentations on these people and then they return them after a fortnight in the Scottish tradition and sometimes longer in other traditions. But they're trying to, in that mythos, renew their genetic code, renew their ability to continue to, to reproduce because they have a fertility issue just as the post-Diluvian giants did. Um, another rabbit hole, but why they had to intermarry with, with humans after the flood. Um, so the description, in my book, I put two accounts of these fairy abductions. If you didn't know it was a fairy abduction, you would swear it was a great alien abduction because they're described exactly the same way and do the exact same things. So that sort of transitional sort of understanding is that some of these aliens might be just ancient beings who had this ancient knowledge because in that mythos, the knowledge before the flood was far greater than what we have today and we're just catching up to that. And so all of that is sort of intermixed, but once that knowledge comes up, it changes the whole world. For the people who are working with them, allegedly, and or people who are looking forward to that information, it will change the world in a new way to help us bring about the new Atlantis and that new age. The flip side of that coin is, is of course, the exact opposite. We don't know if, it, if that is true, what the end result will be. Right. Woo. I... Um, I when you started talking about the aliens, I mean, I didn't realize we were going to go on that on that tangent, but I've been watching a lot of uh, 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 television shows, frankly, uh, about um, aliens among us, and uh, the whole thing about them uh, uh, abducting human beings and doing sexual experiments to um, to reinforce their genetic code is something I've heard in a couple of different places. Uh, just watching these these alien abduction shows that we're watching, um, and there's a, I can't remember the guy's name, um, but there's one that he sort of hosts, and then um, the uh, Legends of Skinwalker Ranch is the one that I that I've caught up with uh, that I'm current on in terms of you know binge watching. Uh, but I really think um, the Legends of Skinwalker Ranch, uh, that ranch there in Utah. I honestly think at some point in the very near future, they're going to reveal uh, actual aliens. I, yep. think, I think we, we've come so far in the process, and, you know, uh, the former Utah Attorney General is involved. Um, the, the guy who owns Skinwalker Ranch is a very high-level real estate uh, a magnet. Um, and I, I think within the next uh, uh, broadcast season, I think they're going to have a big reveal. We're going to have to deal with that as, as humanity confronts the fact that aliens are, are there and exist. I, I think that's yeah. really going to happen. I, I think that's a good possibility as well. And the question gets to be is who are the aliens and where are they from? Right. And are they telling us the truth? Right. <laughs> um, and what's their intentions? And what's interesting is, is you get sort of, where are they from? You get kind of two interesting aspects when it's, limited just to the modern sort of the alien ideology is that they either come from other planets or they come through portals. So is it that they come from another dimension or do they come from other planets? If they come from another dimension, that's a whole different ballgame, right? Because that leads back into the ancient texts of portals 
and the gods going back and forth between Hades, which is thought to be in another dimension along with the abyss, um, and the home of, of, of a lot of the gods, and that the giants would also go back and forth. So in the Ugaritic text, for example, you have the Rapiu or the Rapium, which is the root word for Raphaim that shows up as giant in the Bible. Was more times is like 35 times as opposed to three times Nephilim shows up. Um, and they are the post-Diluvian giants. And in the Ugaritic text, they have this fertility issue. Just as the Bible also describes their strength as the reeds, and they're called the terrible ones. And the reeds, you know, also will say they're mighty, they're strong, they're this, they're that. But it also says they have a fertility issue. They're childless, and which is why they're going to have to intermarry with, with, with humans. So you have that sort of consistency. But they... The, these Rapiu, they're doing fertility uh, rituals to Baal and Asheroth to come back to create more Raphaim because they have that issue. But just like the gods go through the portals, the living kings do, and the spiritual, uh, the spirits of the dead Raphaim, because their spirits don't go to sleep in polytheism, go back and forth if they've done the right rituals and were killed or die the right way. They have the ability to navigate their way in into the underworld. So you have that connection of portals into ancient ideology. So roll that forward to the Gilgal Raphaim for a second. If people aren't familiar with that, that means wheel of the giants or wheel of the spirits. Raphaim is a word that is rooted in 7495 Hebrew, which means basically medicine, healer, doctor. Uh, because the Raphaim and the Nephilim were thought to have some sort of healing capability. It produces a secondary word, which is 7496, spelled the same way, which is a spirit, evil spirit, shade, and 7497, which produces the tribe of giants. So um, you can see different Hebrew Rafa, Rafa words in the original text, but you have to take it back to the right one to get the, you know, and, and understand it for the specific definition. So you have these. Uh, the, the, these Raphaim uh, at the Gilga Raphaim in the Ugaritic text at the foot of Mount Hermon where giants were in Book of Enoch and, and mythology created both before and after the flood or at least the oath was sworn there to, to do so um, and in there you have over a hundred domains which is means portal and uh, again domains also you might when you google it it'll say fairy domain because that's what they're called. They're like a mini Stonehenge, right? right? And so anything, and a lot of times in mythology, you have two walls and a rock like that, like would be a mini Stonehenge, which is a fairy dolmen, would be a portal into another world. And uh, caves can be a portal. There can be a lot of different kinds of portals. It's sort of a standard thing. So if it's coming from that type of people, we don't know whether or not these, these individuals in the mythos as they're thought to have changeling capability. So we don't know whether or not they're true aliens or they're beings from the past that have been here all along. And also what's interesting about that is that one way the Nazis would have been able to know where to go in Antarctica for, to search would have been from their occult knowledge. And they were taught, according to uh, many authors on this, that they actually spoke to their spiritual guides, the celestial white masters, the great white brotherhood, uh, fallen angels, demons, whatever you want to call who they were talking to, that they were as at a depth level, at the leadership level, in continuous communication and explains where they got. And they actually they explain that they got most of their technology knowledge 
from the spiritual guides. And so all of a sudden now you start to say, okay, that might make some sense because how does a, a bankrupt nation in 1933 with no standing army create one of the greatest armies in the world with a blitzkrieg strategy that comes out of nowhere? How do they build Panzer and Tiger tanks, which are still the basis for the tanks to this day with a technology that they didn't have and do it very, very quickly? How did they create the jet engine, the rocket engine, the uh, single wing technology, um, all sorts of different things. And they say that knowledge was provided to them to help them in what they were doing. So one might presume then if they got, if just going from one speculation to another speculation here is, is that they had knowledge provided to them of what it was going to take to get to Antarctica, where to find it, and who to contact there if there if there's people there. Well, maybe they well, did they, recreate Atlantis, and just like the Atlanteans, they shot their load too quickly and lost. Yeah. Well, exactly, exactly. And you know, back to what you were saying about uh, who who are who really are the aliens? Are they from another planet or are they from another dimension? Yeah. You know, I I've been loosely studying biblical prophets um and um you know just from everything that i that i take in because i i read um pretty much every day and uh watch all these sort of informative uh shows but in studying biblical prophecy you know i i'm fairly convinced that uh that we're coming up to uh what is in biblical prophecy, sort of the end of the world. Um, maybe even within a decade or so. I always joke that uh, the world's going to end the day I retire. Um, but, you know. Oh, it will. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 it's, it's all your fault. That that's probably the case. But, but uh, I often wonder if these aliens are these, these Nephilim, and, and I, I say uh, they're not really aliens from another planet they're they're angels and demons uh that they can sort of uh move through dimensions and they can fly in, in ways that uh, for us are physically impossible um and, it, and it's really angels and demons coming together uh for the end times i mean that's that's really um in my state of mind that's that's how i think we're, we're what's coming up what we're playing out for. Um, yeah, because I, I was Catholic, raised Catholic. I went to Catholic school, Catholic college, I went to Loyola here in Baltimore. And um, so I've, I've had this sort of general Christian knowledge pretty much my whole life. And um, I just started recently paying attention to, to what's really in the Bible because part of Catholicism is you learn from the priest. You don't really read the Bible and study the Bible yourself. And so I I've sort of moved away from that over the last couple of years, and uh, I, I really think that's that's where we're at. That it really is um, maybe interdimensional entities, but but angels and demons more or less uh, that we're going to have to confront fairly soon. Well, and it's amazing that our technology is developing with AI and quantum computing so that we can start to probe into different dimensions, and we're right. starting to discover and you know, and then learn maybe what the ancients already knew and just speculating that, you know, how to get across in, and into those kinds of, kinds of dimensions. And 
I think we might be in the fig tree generation. We'll have to see how that sort of plays out. Uh, certainly, it's starting to sort of shape up. And if we are, then we can learn a lot of lessons from the Nazi reign of terror. Because well, if you look at uh, the Rosicrucian Gnostic Nostradamus, and his predictions of the three Antichrist figures, he is thought in those circles to be the second of those Antichrist type figures. And is also rumored, you know, when, you know, and that, uh, again, this is, you can't prove this, but there's rumors that people say that when Hitler was dying, he was saying, you know, wait for the one to come because he's the one who's going to finish this thing type of thing. But if you look at what he was building, he wanted a world government. He just wanted to do it by force, which nobody's been able to do. So it probably can't happen by force. It's got to be built for the Antichrist type figure. But he was raised to be an Antichrist type figure, right? And you have a polytheist global religion he was about to, he would have enforced on that whole religion, on, on the whole world. And he was trying to get rid of the Jewish people who he thought was the enemy of the Aryan race. And so that is sort of, if you look at the end time, there's going to be significant genocide that happens. There's several tribulations that are going to happen to people who don't go along with the world government and the world religion, which is Babylon in end time prophecy. Sure. Uh, and, there, and you have to separate the two. It's a, one's a beast religion, one is part of the beast, and beast has several meanings as well. But you have the same sort of dynamics that are going on for an antichrist type figure um, that we can look on for similarities along with being this uh, national socialism whereas world government as we'll probably see built will be socialism on a global scale so global socialism as opposed to national socialism as they dis distance themselves from that national socialist term and have done so and made them a right-wing group when it's actually a left-wing group yeah. <laughs> just yeah. absolutely astounding brainwashing if, if if you ask me so if we are indeed in closing in on the days of noah which is one of the overarching signs of, as one of three uh, of the signs that Jesus left with us, then we're just catching up to that technology today that they had before, because we can't build things like Machu Picchu or the pyramids with all of the sacred geometry, astrological alignment type of uh, masonry. We can't do that today, but they did it somehow way before that that technology should have been available for us. So we're missing a piece of history. And I think they also had the ability to do other things with the help of whether or not you're an alien uh, mythos person or not, they had help from either the aliens or the gods or, or somewhere to be able to, to do that kind of thing. So I think as we move forward into the new Atlantis, which I'd mentioned earlier, you have uh, this, and then this new age, as it's also called this utopian millennium that was going to be the third Reich that um, Hitler talked about. You're going to have uh, a prophecy to start to think about that's built over several prophecies, but it's very, very consistent. So you have 10 toes in Daniel 2. You have 10 horns in Daniel 7. Revelation 13 and 17, you have those that same Im imagery of the seven horns and the seven kings. You have the beast empire that's going to rise at the same time as Babylon that will have 10 kings 
ten horns, ten toes, all the same allegory of, of the same end time empire um, that is going to rise at the end time. And that's ten groups of nations. So you have ten separate empires with one representative that's going to be uh, coming about in the end time. What's interesting about Daniel 2.43 is it talks about that the descendants of these giants or the, the leaders of these ten kings, if let's say there's new ones that come along to take over like in aliens or whatever, um, they're going to mix their seed in Daniel 2.43 with humankind, which is really bizarre statement. And then in at the time of Armageddon, you have demons coming out of the mouth of Antichrist and the false prophet. And people think that, okay, that's the connection of demons, yes, but that may not be quite the definition. It could be, uh, you could translate that two ways out of Greek. It could be as it's translated or that the false prophet and the Antichrist commanded and ordered these demons, which they are set above in that time, to bring to, to go out to the earth to bring the armies together. So what we see happening today, we haven't seen the universal religion yet come up. And that's going to be important because if, if the Jewish people are going to be permitted to start doing their sacrifice on a wing or an extremity or an overspreading of the temple, then there's going to have to be universal religion because Islam is not going to permit that. And if Islam is the end-time religion, which I don't think it is, it still wouldn't permit it. So you're going to need that bringing home of the religions, as, as the Gnostics like to call it, and you're going to need uh, Babylon to come about. So what, what we do see is, I think, the starting of, of the birth sorrows, the pangs, and the quickening of those birth pains, is that you're seeing a jostling of position for those empires. So you have Putin, who is absolutely um, obsessed with the Ukraine, because he believes he's uh, an offspring of the Putyanin bloodline dynasty of the Scythians that established Kiev. So he's going to protect Kiev. And that his name comes out of nowhere in about 1850 with his grandfather. And typically what happened, in this, and his grandfather was born in, in Kiev, um, is when the royal bloodlines have extramarital kids, they give them part of the name, but not all of the name. So he took, the, it was named Putin versus the full Putyan, and that was the founders of the Tsars. And he wants to create that Scythian empire um, as part of those ten nations, and also, oops, I'm sorry. Also, you have uh, my battery's dying, so I'm just going to hook up. You have people like Xi that is also uh, looking to um, set up his sphere of influence, his group of uh, nations, his empire. I think we're starting to see that possible 10 start to shape up in to build that whole that new Atlantis that was led by demigods that produced the bodiless spirits that are we know as demons. Right, right. Wow. Yeah, it makes perfect sense. Well, the good news for you, Tom, is that of the 120 or so published Garden of Doom episodes, probably at least 80 of them cover parts of this, uh, including this one. Uh, <laughs> The, the bad news is that you might only have eight years to listen to them uh, be, before it's all over. Um, but the worst news is we're not talking about Nazis in the, in the specific digging in certain places. So, so we have to go back. We have to get to some of the actual expeditions that Nazis did. 
um, so that so that I am not lying to the audience about what this show is about. Not that this wasn't amazing, and this this could be probably seven shows in and of itself. Uh, but uh, but but let's hear about what we know, where the Nazis went, and what they were looking for. I guess as quickly as we can. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll just put myself on mute so I don't interject and turn this into Yeah. Well, obviously, in my in my opinion, uh, Montesegur is the largest resource uh, planted place where they went. But anywhere they went, anywhere where they invaded, they were sending along people to um, look for these grail, grail hollows, ancient technology, ancient knowledge. So when they invaded um, Egypt, they were all over the pyramids and things like that. So again, that sort of put into the Raiders of the Lost Ark uh, uh, story uh, all throughout the Middle East that they were controlling they were looking there particularly for things in Mesopotamia and some Sumeria and they were really from what I understand they were really focused on trying to get things like sarcophagi uh, they were trying to get uh, the ancient anything on the ancient Anunnaki who originally formed the original Ringlords they were absolutely obsessed with that I don't have documentation or anything that they actually found anything but everywhere that they went everywhere they invaded they had teams that were searching for the treasures and in some places they didn't find it but they took other treasures like you know they would take paintings and everything else so it's sort of all sort of part of that and all throughout the ukraine and through that slav area uh, they're rumored to have found all sorts of things that go back to the Khazars, the Scythians, um, the Tartars, all of those different people that they were trying to make their connections to or separate connections from because they felt that they were a little bit different and a more pure bloodline than what the Russians and the Slavs were. And you start to get into when you when you start to open up that door is as was the complete destruction of the Romanov dynasty that extends out of the Putyanin dynasty it succeeded them in about 1600 as a branch of where they wiped out because there was a rivalry going on between them and the European families and either through purity and or agenda they were on complete opposite sides so you create social masonry uh, now I'm down a rabbit hole um, with communism then you create another social masonry Nazism to take care of the first problem all of them go rogue but anyway wherever they went they were looking for things um, that uh, were going to promote their ideology the only place where we get any written records were some of those ones that I alluded to and I cover off in my book about Montesegur okay wow and I, you know, I, I think that explains why the Nazis spent so much time in North Africa and the Middle East, because tactically and strategically, neither of those places were really a threat. And had they put those assets just going west, uh, you know, they probably could have conquered uh, yeah. Europe and then made their way to the eastern uh, seaboard of the U.S. Yes, the U.S. was busy on the western side dealing with the uh, the, the Japanese Empire, so they, they probably cost themselves uh, the war uh, by by looking for, I guess, they were looking for these signs that would show that they had the universal truth or weapons or maybe a little bit of both um, in this ancient knowledge, ancient technology. So 
Uh, I guess everyone go watch the Raiders of the Lost Ark uh, trilogy, or I think there's four now. Um, and uh, enjoy the Red Skull. And, and when you say Hell Hydra, realize what you're really hailing yourself to. Um, but, <laughs> but, but this was, uh, this was uh, magnificent. I, I don't like to give rounds of applause on the show because it doesn't come up well on, on audio. But uh, just, uh, just know that I'm... Uh, uh, giving you a pantomime uh, round, round of applause and standing ovation here. And I guess the end result is you must protect the Jews, but, uh, you know, to fend this all off. So the Jews must be protected at all costs uh, unless they want to do sacrifice, which, you know, uh, I, you know, I'm not, I'm not the best uh, Jewish person in the world, uh, but I don't remember human sacrifice being taught to me. So uh, <laughs> as a youth or, or otherwise, so uh uh, as long as you don't remind us of that, I guess, or, or you know, then, then everything's going to be all fine. Everything's going to be all right, which is, I guess, why the evangelicals feel so strongly about uh, uh, supporting Israel. Anyway, I'm not going to go down this hole, even though I just started it. I'm going to abruptly turn around and say, and and go out of the regular map. Yes, a deep hole, and stay into the and stay in the Garden of Doom, which is its its own hole, but not exactly that hole. Um, I'll, I'll, you know, stick into stick with Tartarus and Duodal and uh, any other uh, portal portal that may be there. All right, any closing comments or thoughts, Thomas? Uh, just to, to say that uh, God saved us from human sacrifice with uh, uh, the whole episode with Abraham, so we don't have to worry about that. Excellent. And, uh, but otherwise, uh, again, fantastic uh, listening to you, Mr. Wayne. Uh, uh, and uh, thank you, Jeff, for inviting me on this show. This was, uh, this was very interesting. You're welcome. And Tom, if if there's anything that you want people to follow you on, do, I mean, are you interested? Is there anything for you to promote? Do you have social media that you care about? I, I'm going to guess the answer is no. The answer is no. Right. Uh, I, you know, I... I am uh, 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 recluse. Well, I'm a recluse. Yes, that's true. But I'm also not not um, I'm not too in depth on anything. I'm, I'm sort of uh, I, I can't remember. Uh, <laughs> we got it. You have nothing to promote. All right. Yeah. Exactly. So, uh, Gary, let them know where they can find you, how they can support you, what they can buy from you, and and things like that. Yeah, and, and I'll just close also with uh, just one uh, small thought is is that if one really wants to understand our history, if one really wants to understand what's going on in the world today and what is actually going on, you got to get behind the superficial headlines of, of the media. you got to get into the context of who they believe they are, what they believe their genealogies are, what their religion is, and what that core agenda is, is because you can't get answers for the obsession of Putin today just because he's some sort of evil tyrant. He's got an agenda in mind. You need to understand that because we're going to see more of this as we go. You can get a hold of me through my website, the Genesis6conspiracy.com. That's Genesis6, the number 6conspiracy.com. And on that website, I have a generous excerpt of all 98 chapters, so you can get a good feel for you whether or not it's the right book for you or not. And uh, don't worry, the whole book's not on there, even though there's a ton of information <laughs> there. You cannot believe how much information is in the 800 pages. So um, it is, uh, so you'll get a good feel. If you want to get a hold of me, you can contact me through the contact the author there. If you want to buy the book, you can get a signed copy. You can 
can get it uh, off the Buy Now page, which has a signed copy available for people overseas in the U.S. and in Canada. You can also link over to um, the Kindle version and get the uh, digital version if you want it. And you can link over to BarnesandNoble.com, Amazon.com, Amazon.ca. It's available through most uh, online bookstores and it's distributed by bookmasters. So if you wanted to support your local bookstore, they can order it in. Um, and so if you wanted a document like on gluten that I was talking about, get a hold of me. If you got some questions, get a hold of me. Like, take me three or four weeks to get back to you. I have that much of a backlog of emails that I continually deal with, but I will get back to you. Well, thank you so much for your general. Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Tom. I, I, I have the Barnes & Noble gift card that I still have left over from last Christmas, and I'm going to buy your book. So and <laughs> you got one more thing. All right. Excellent. Excellent radio there. Thanks, Tom. Uh, <laughs> so, folks, you know where you can support Gary uh, and hear his stuff. Uh, yep, he's got a big, beautiful book there. Um, you can also check out prior episodes of The Garden of Doom. But if you also want to hear from probably somewhere in the neighborhood of a dozen uh, cross-discipline um, experts uh, covering the topic of the Nephilim, and now you know that the Nephilim is not just a Old Testament biblical concept. It, it ties into demigods, Anunnaki, Watchers, you name it. There's there's not a culture or religion that doesn't have uh, some sort of uh, uh, hybrids, uh, uh, you know, or, or f fallen divine divinities, superpower beings, uh, inbreeding with uh, mortal man and, and possibly influencing the tides of history. Uh, and, uh, and it's much more diabolical than Marvel's The Eternals would, ha would have you believe uh, in, in the stories. So that was a bad movie. So disappointing. That movie was made for me and they, they let me down. Uh, I, I was so, I think I've turned heel on Marvel ever since. Anyway, if you want to hear that, uh, uh, buy tickets to the vir virtual conference for NACON, the Nephilim Anthropology Conference. You can do so at HTTPS colon backslash backslash capital. N-A-C, lowercase O-N, that's one word, NACOM, but the first three letters are capitalized, dot Eventbrite, capital E-V-E-N-T-B-R-I-T-E, that's one word, Eventbrite, dot uh, C-O dot U-K. I always want to say com, but it's not. It's C-O. And the tickets, are, again, the remote, the virtual tickets are very reasonably priced. It is a fundraiser for a, a church in... Um, uh, in the London area, which is a Gnostic church, um, but uh, also celebrates Abrahamic Botanica and is very uh, welcoming to uh, almost Unitarian in spirit. Uh, I don't want to say that as uh, the, the Church of Unitarian because I don't know enough about it or the Church of Gnosticism to put that, but I mean Unitarian in, in that uh, all perspectives are welcome. Um, so check that out, and thank you for tuning in. Hope you enjoyed it. Uh, tell your friends, like, give us a review, give us five stars, and uh, but most importantly, refer the show to your friends, and we appreciate it. Once again, thank you to Tom, my old friend, for coming on, Gary, my new friend, for being just a font of information, and there's no question you can't ask him without uh, an answer backed up by dates, facts, numbers, scripture, you name it. It's all there. So thanks to both of you. Uh, and we will hear from all of you, or you'll hear from uh, me anyway, next week in the Garden of Doom.